Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. So we've been looking at the book of Revelation that God has revealed to the Apostle John what takes place in the last days, the last seven-year tribulation, what we call the tribulation period, before Jesus returns and sets up his eternal kingdom. Today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 15. I would encourage you to turn there. And today, chapter 15 is really like an introduction to the judgments of God that are coming in Revelation chapter 16. So let's pick up together. We're going to start in Revelation chapter 15, verse 2. And notice what it says. It says, I saw before me what seemed to be a glass sea mixed with fire, and on it stood all the people who had been victorious over the beast and his statue and the number representing his name. They are all holding harps that God had given them, and they were singing. And so there's the imagery that you get of, you know, uh, having harps in heaven. We see this group of people with a proclamation of worship to God. But this, uh, this chapter also contains a second group of people. It's the seven sentencing angels with a proclamation of wrath from God. Let's check out verse 1. It says, I saw in heaven another another marvelous event of great significance. Seven angels were holding the seven last plagues, which would bring God's wrath to completion. Now, as a reminder, we have discovered that during this final seven-year tribulation period, that God will pour out his final judgments upon the earth that there will be the seven seal judgments of God. We've looked at those. There will be the seven trumpet judgments of God. And now here we see the introduction to these final seven uh, uh, judgments, called this, which we're going to see in a moment, called the seven bowl judgments. And we're going to learn all about those in Revelation chapter 16. And when these last seven bowl judgments are poured out, which seem to be that they're going to happen in the final, final days of the seven-year period of time, then that'll be it. That's when Jesus comes back, destroys Satan, sets up his eternal kingdom. But here's my question is, why does John call these seven plagues, these judgments of God, uh, the worst that the world will ever see? Why does John call them a marvelous event? That's a little odd. Or as the NIV says, a great and marvelous sign. Well, what makes this so marvelous it's because God, we, John is letting us know that God is fulfilling his plan. And God's plan is going to be seen in the final judgments. And after that, there is no more. God's plan will come to completion. So John's looking at these last judgments, the evidence that God's plan that he had from the beginning will be fulfilled in the very end. And John says, this is great and this is marvelous that God has been true to what he has said he would do. And then we jump ahead to verse 5. And it says this, it says, I looked and I saw the temple in heaven, God's tabernacle, and it was thrown wide open. The seven angels who were holding the seven plagues came out of the temple and they were clothed in spotless white linen with gold sashes across their chest. And so John now sees these seven angels, and they're holding the seven plagues or the seven judgments of God. He sees them, and what are they exiting? What are they leaving, the verse says? Where are they leaving? The temple, right? The tabernacle. 
Most translations call this the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. Now, why does God show John this temple, this tabernacle? Why does God uh, give John this scene, this particular picture, and what does it have to do with the last days? Well, we have to understand the temple or the tabernacle in order to understand what we're getting at here. So let's just kind of dive back, go back to understand the context. The tabernacle was originally a portable temple that God told the Israelites to build. And it had these cloth walls that ended up forming a rectangle, and they were set up to God's exact specifications. This cloth uh, rectangle that was set up had one entrance. And the priest would walk in through that one entrance, and the first item present in front of him was was the bronze brazen altar. And it was there at that altar that the animal would be killed, blood would, be, would flow, and the sacrifice would take place, a sacrifice to God. And the message was clear to us then and even now that the only way that you and I can approach God is through sacrifice. We know that it ultimately concludes in the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God, the final sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ. You would then, as a priest, move forward into the tent structure, the actual tabernacle itself. So that outer area, that was the, that was the courtyard area. And then you would enter into the tent structure, and it was divided into two rooms. The first room that you entered into was called the holy place. To your left was the, was the golden lampstand that lit up that, that room. To the right, you had the table with the showbread on it that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. In front of you, you had the golden incense altar. And right behind that, you had the, the veil or the curtain. You would open that, the high priest would open that curtain, and then inside that little compartment or room, that was referred to as the Holy of Holies. That Holy of Holies contained an item. You might be familiar with it. It's called the Ark or the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, this location, this place was, was called the Temple of the Tabernacle of the Testimony. Now, why was it called that? It was because the Ark was called the Ark of the Testimony. And what does that mean? Why was it called the Ark of the Testimony? It was because of what the contents were inside of the Ark. Inside of that ark, that wooden box overlaid with gold, inside of that ark of the testimony were three items. First item were the Ten Commandments, written on two uh, tablets of stone that God gave Moses. It was actually the second, uh, uh, the second draft, if you will, of the Ten Commandments, because when Moses came down, saw the people decided to bail on worshiping God and decided to worship a cow, and so uh, Moses shattered those, got, had to get a new set. And so those, those uh, Ten Commandments, not only were they the commandments of God, but they stood as a testimony against the people for forsaking God and worshiping at the altar of a cow that they made. But then there was a second item in this room, and it was a jar of manna or bread. Now, what was that? That was a sum of the bread that, that fell from the sky for 40 years that fed the people of Israel as they wandered the desert. And if you know some of the story, you know how, that the people of Israel, they weren't too thrilled about the bread. 
That that was their primary source of food. And so they grumbled and they complained against God on numerous occasions. And so you have this, this, this bread there as, as a testimony against the children of Israel because they grumbled against God because of his, the provision that he provided them. The third item in the temple was a piece of Aaron's staff which was a symbol of Aaron's leadership. Again, some of you might know the story. Uh, the people complained against God because of, of, of Aaron's leadership and that God chose Aaron. And so uh, there was this little contest that happened, and the people wanted one person, God wanted Aaron. And so basically it was set up to like the staff would, would end up, God did a miracle, and that staff ended up flowering and producing fruit, thus proving and confirming that Aaron was God's chosen man for leadership. And so the ark, so that piece of Aaron's staff stood as a testimony against the people for not trusting God in his appointed leadership. So you have this ark, you have this box overlaid with gold, and it stands as a testimony of the failure of the people. But God in his grace, he did something special. Once a year, the high priest would walk into the temp, holy place, walk through the holy place, and into the holy of holies. And he would sprinkle the blood of sacrifice on top of the ark. And on that day, the ark was seen as the seat of mercy, often called the mercy seat. The ark was transformed from an ark of testifying against the people to a place of mercy that was extended to the people. John gets this. He totally understands this. You and I, we got to hear it. we got to kind of have an explanation for it. But John understands this language and what this was all about. And so John sees this vision in the last days of what happens, and he sees this temple of the tabernacle of the testimony, and it's related to the last days. And what is the message sending to you and I and to John? Well, it's twofold. That God's judgments in the last days stand as a testimony against a world that has rejected him as God, who has rejected Jesus as their Savior. And in fact, not only that, but rather than the temple being a place of mercy or salvation, the, the mercy seat, now here in Revelation 15, the temple is only a throne of judgment. In other words... We are discovering here the time of God's mercy will come to a close. No more salvation, only a time of judgment. In fact, that's why many authors or commentators believe that from this point going forward, no one else can be saved during the tribulation. And Revelation uh, verse 8 seems to allude to this as well in other places. Notice what God gives the angels to use for their judgments. It says in verse 7, one of the four living beings handed each of the seven angels a gold bowl filled with the wrath of God. A gold bowl, or a better translation, a shallow saucer. Not this tall vase, but a shallow saucer. What are we indicating here? That the contents of these golden bowls would be poured out quickly and completely. That the final judgment would be big and it would be swift. And we're going to read about that in chapter 16. And then the end will come. And we get more, idea, uh, more imagery of, of the finality of this and that this is taking place as we look into verse 8. 
Revelation 15, verse 8, it says John sees this and he sees the temple was filled with the smoke from God's glory and power. No one could enter the temple until the seven angels had completed pouring out the seven plagues. John knows perfectly clear what this imagery is here. John understands, and it reminds him, it tells us, or reminds some of us, that Moses could not enter the tabernacle whenever the smoke of God's glory was present, called the Shekinah glory of God. You see, Moses was oftentimes allowed to go in and and meet with God and talk with God as he often would and and go in and he would have this conversation with God. And even a couple times when God was like, hey, I'm done with these Israelites, Moses, I'm going to make you my people, forget them. And Moses was like, no, God, come on, come on, don't bail on them. And this is letting us know, God is saying in effect, no more discussion. Discussion is over. Judgment is on. This is final. It's irreversible. No one can talk to me about this. I have set this in place, and this is final. So we have these angels, and they're prepared for the judgment, the final judgment of God that will bring all of God's judgment to completion. Not only do we have that at the same time before the throne of God, before the temple of God, the temple of the tabernacle of testimony, We notice that there's worship happening. Let's go back to Revelation 15, verse 2 again. And it says this. It says, I saw before me what seemed to be a glass sea mixed with fire. And on it stood all the people who had been victorious over the beast and his statue and the number representing his name. They were all holding harps that God had given them, and they were singing. Who's this group who is praising and singing? Notice verse 2, it tells us there that it's the ones who are standing, who are worshiping on a sea of glass. That's language we saw back in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of other worshipers worshiping God on a sea of glass. But these are different worshipers because this sea of glass is mixed with fire. In other words, these are the tribulation saints who go through the fire of persecution They've suffered the atrocities. They've suffered the persecutions of the Antichrist. Literally multitude upon multitude, millions upon millions upon millions who have suffered, who have been persecuted, tortured, beaten. They weren't able to buy, sell, or trade, which would even lead many of them to starve to death. Why? Because they refused to take the mark of the beast that was required to buy, sell, or trade. And they refused to take it on their right hand or on their forehead, as we talked about last week, the mark of the beast, number of his name, 666. Somebody after first service came up to me and said, hey, that sermon last week that you did, and, and uh, you know, talking about the mark of the beast and 666, and, and a bunch of us went to McDonald's after, or Denny's or wherever it was, afterwards, and, uh, and they gave us the receipt with our number on it, and, and on the top of the receipt was the number 777, real big on the top, and I was like, oh, that's cool, that's kind of neat, God's, God's perfect number there. So you have all these believers, and they've been suffering, but it tells us in this verse, they have victory over the beast, and that means to you and I, death doesn't mean that we lose. We may die, but it doesn't mean we lose. These faithful believers, they've gone through the fires of persecution. And here's what I want you and I to understand about this. They've gone through the fires of persecution, but they have not lost their song. 
They have not stopped singing. They continue to sing. They draw near to God as opposed to wandering from God. And maybe you've discovered in your own life or in the life of others that when you go through a period of time of pain, of suffering, of discouragement, when trials strike you, you understand that coming out of that, you're never the same again. Why? Because pain always moves us. Pain moves you and I in one of two directions. Pain will move us closer to God or it'll move us further from God. With some people, man, they get angry at God. They shake their fist at God. They're always blaming God. And the only thing that they're thinking about is why, 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 God? And they move further from God. Other people are driven to God with a greater trust, and they hold on tighter to God with an even greater intensity. And so my question is, what about you? When pain strikes you, when trials come your way, how do you respond? Draw closer to God or further from God? There's various responses to pain and trials that come, with, come into our lives, and we respond in different ways. Many people respond to trials with bitterness, And you can see those who are believers that they aren't hopeful in God. They're not hopeful in their faith. The joy of the Lord clearly isn't their strength. Some even get angry and ticked off at God. And there's a place for emotion, even to be angry. We see that in Scripture. But if that's you, listen, be careful. Don't stay in that anger too long. Otherwise, it'll take up residence in your life. And it's what the author of Hebrews writes and says, let no one become like a bitter root that grows up and causes many troubles with its poison. Man, our response to pain, if it's bitterness and we hold on to that, we discover here, one translation says, it defiles us and it spreads like poison beyond ourselves, even to others. There's some, their response to pain and to trials is bitterness. Another common response to pain and to suffering and to trials is this phony uh, denial or resignation. Oh, well, you know, it happens. You just kind of bite your lip, you fake a smile, and you just try to get through it. It's sort of like the ancient Stoics from Greece. The Stoics thought the pinnacle of maturity was to show zero emotion, to express no emotion. In fact, for them, the highest mark of maturity was when one of your children died, because it was common that one of your children would die, at least one, back then. When your child died, you would have zero response, zero emotion. They were stoically set, and they would stoically endure. Listen, that's just denial. That will catch up to you eventually. There's another response to pain, to trials. It's a better response. We see that here with these tribulation saints. And that's worship. That's praise. That even through all the pain, that even through all the suffering, even through all the persecution, we see that they're still worshiping. David said this during one of his trials in Psalm 121. He said, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? He said, well, my help comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. Where does your help come from? Earlier we sang the song, there is a hope. 
We sang, His name is Jesus. We sang, He is alive. And because there's hope, His name is Jesus, as we sang, as said in the song, and as we declared, so church, don't stop your praising. Why? As the song said, for we have overcome. So we see these worshipers praising God as their response to their pain, to their trials, to their suffering. Do you run to God? Or do you run from God? Do you run to God in worship and praise? Or do you run from God in panic, wandering from Him? I suppose your response and my response to pain and to trials that we experience depends on how much we really believe Romans chapter 8. You see, Romans chapter 8 tells us this in verse 28. It says, we know that in all things, everybody say all things. We know in all things, God works for the good. Everybody say for the good. For the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Do you believe that? You see, I wonder if instead some of us think, well, I think that in some things, God will work for the good. I think, you know, occasionally God will work for the good. Or do you agree with the scripture here that says, all things. In all things, God works for the good. Just to give the disclaimer, it doesn't mean that all things are good. But that even in the bad, God can work through that for the good. That God can bring beauty from the ashes. That there's something good that can come out of your pain and your trials. I don't know what it looks like for you. Maybe for you, maybe what the good that comes out of it is a maturing. A maturity that takes place in your life that wasn't there before. Maybe the good that comes out of your pain or your trial is a lesson that you get to use to help others. And that gets to be a testimony of God's goodness in your life or faithfulness in your life. Maybe for you, the good that comes out of your pain or your trial is this unwavering trust that you develop in God. An unwavering faith. Or maybe, like Job, maybe it's simply that God will be glorified in your pain. God can work good out of the bad. These tribulation saints, they understood it. They believed it. And they clung to that. They clung that God could work for good even to the point of death. Listen, you might be suffering right now. You might be going through a tremendous trial. You might be experiencing very real pain. And I just wonder if for you and I, as we look at these tribulation saints, even with a little bit of a mind towards the 360 Christians right now who are persecuted for their faith around the world, I just wonder if these tribulation saints can, who can go through an unparalleled time of persecution, if they can go through that and still come out singing and worshiping and praising God, then perhaps you and I, in our pain, in our trials, in our suffering, that we can still lift up a song, a heart song to God as we praise and as we worship God, 
no matter our fire of persecution. If that could be our testimony. Notice what they sing in verse 3. They're singing the song of Moses. Exodus chapter 15. Deuteronomy chapter 32 give us the words of the song of Moses. It's a song of deliverance. When God delivered the people of Israel from a Pharaoh and gave them a new land, a new home, so in the same way that the God will de- de- or excuse me, God delivered this group from the, really the bondage of the Antichrist and delivered them into a new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. They were singing the song of Moses, but also verse 3 tells us they also sang the song of the Lamb. The song of the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Hey, we're in church. It's an easy answer. Who's the song of the Lamb about? Jesus, right? What's the song of the Lamb? We know Jesus was victorious over death. Death could not hold him down. He was delivered from the sting of death. And so you and I also, as believers in Jesus Christ, we know that death will not hold us down. Both of these show us that that what is before us is this deliverance that God has for us with ultimately the focus being on Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ really is a star, the focal point of the entire book of Revelation. These martyrs, they're not licking their wounds and they're they're not focused on, on the trials. They're singing to Jesus. They're worship. They're worshiping Jesus. They're focused on Jesus. And I would encourage you, I, kind of, I just remind you of this. As we've studied the book of Revelation, it isn't about focusing on the judgments of God or on the beast or the Antichrist or the mark of the beast or any of that. Our focus is meant to be on Jesus Christ. He is who we worship. That He will be victorious in the end. And that He will set up His kingdom. And that's a model for you and I to follow in our lives that Jesus would be the focus of our life song, that Jesus would be the one whom our whole being, of who we are, our whole being would focus on Jesus and worship Jesus. And so with these tribulation saints, we see the worship of Jesus, and that worship, notice how it plays out for them. It plays out in their words, the words in their worship as they declare in verse 3, great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Man, even though they went through a time of intense persecution, even though they were watching the judgments of God pour out upon the earth and literally destroying the earth, they see God's works and they say, man, God, what you do is great. It's marvelous. So I ask you, do you see the works of God? Can you see the work of God in your life Or do you only see what God hasn't done for you? What do you see? In fact, they not only acknowledge that they see the works of God and that they're great, notice what they say about God's ways. Verse 3, just and true are your ways, God. Isn't that interesting? They're not blaming God. They're not saying, oh, God, this is so unfair, what I'm having to go through and what I'm having to suffer through. God, how can, you, how, how can you allow me to suffer? God, how can you allow me to God? No, 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 they're saying, God, we trust you. We trust your ways. God, we trust that your ways are just. God, we trust that your judgments that we're living through are just. And in fact, there's this wonder inside of them in verse 4. As they say, who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? 
for you alone are holy. It's like they're perplexed, right? They're, they're just wondering, man, after all that the earth has seen, God, why won't people fear you? Why won't people turn to you? Why won't people wake up and give glory to God and give their lives to God? Is there people you're praying for that you wonder that sometimes? You're like, God, I, I just don't get it. Why will they not give their life to you? Well, there's a reason why. The mark of a, of a world of individuals who've pushed God aside, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, the answer is, is because there's no fear of God before their eyes. Now, this term fear of God, it isn't some superstitious, like, you know, hide in fear, oh, I'm, I'm afraid. It's a reverential awe before God that produces in you and I humble submission. That I humbly submit to a loving God in reverence and in awe as I revere Him so much for who He is. What's the opposite of humble submission to God? It's living a life focused on ourselves and for ourselves and our opinions about how life should be. Do I judge God's ways according to my own opinion of what I think is just and right? Or do I trust God's ways and the way God does it? Even though this type of thinking is going to escalate during the tribulation period, the reality is, and you and I know this, it already exists today. Now, right now, people are already measuring their decisions about their life and even about God based on their own perspective of truth, based on their own opinion. Whether or not that choice or decision I make will bring me pleasure, whether or not there's something primarily in it for me. What about you? Do you have a healthy fear? a reverent awe towards God that produces humble submission to His will, to His way, not to our way, but to His way. Lord, have Your way in me. Lord, use me. Lord, I am Yours. God, I worship You alone. God, I trust Your ways. I trust Your truth. And even if it doesn't make sense to the way I think about things, God, I will trust You and not my own opinion about what I think I should do. You see, John shows us, or God shows us through John, two very different groups of people with two very different destinies because destiny is all. And on one hand, you have these tribulation saints. They've suffered through the fires of persecution. And yet, what do they do? They humbly trust God and His activity and they trust His ways as they pour out praise, as they pour out worship and adoration to God. On the other hand, you have these sentencing angels who are about to unleash God's final judgment of wrath on those who have just refused to revere and worship God, who have refused to humble themselves you see, God made it clear in the book of Revelation. Judgment is coming. We can't stop it. But listen, you and I, we can't escape it. In fact, Jesus made it clear in John chapter 5, the one who hears my word and believes him who sent me, they have eternal life. And they do not come into judgment, 
but has passed out of death into life. Revelation 15 lets us know we have a choice. We can either lift up our worship to God, our praise to God, our life to God, or we can receive his wrath. Those are the only two options. What do you choose? What do you choose? I want to give you an opportunity to talk about that with God right now. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we come before you now with our hearts open to you and to your will and to your way. If you're here and you're a a saint of God, you're a Jesus follower, I want to invite you to take a moment once again to worship God as you humbly submit to his will and his way in your life once again and you let him know that your life is his, that you trust his ways, even if they don't make sense to you, that no matter what you're going through, no matter how much, the pain, how much pain, how many trials you go through, that you will worship him and him alone. If you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, man, I want to invite you to join the family of God right now. God loves you so much. He wants to have a relationship with you, and he paved a way for you to have a relationship with him. And that's through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus died on a cross so that you could be forgiven of your sins and you can live. He sacrificed himself so you can live. The only way to God is through sacrifice. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening. And we hope you join us for our next episode.